I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. reading from Joel chapter 1 through uh, verses 2 through 3 13 through 15 hear this O elders give ear all inhabitants of the land has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children another generation put a sackcloth and lament your priests wail your ministers of the altar Come past the night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God. Grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord, Alas for the day! For the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. The second reading from Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, 27 through 28. Even now, says the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, 
with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relents from punishing. Who knows whether he will not return and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I, the Lord, am your God and there is no other. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Then afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. The word of God to the people of God. Thanks be to God. Almost everyone has a story to tell about the first time that God let you down. Even, even if you've never thought about it, if you, if you racked your brain today and combed through your memories, you would find that very first moment when God just disappointed you. Maybe you were eight or you were 10 or you were 20 and you did, you, you did everything right. You knelt, you knelt by your bed and you clasped your hands in front of you and you prayed earnestly. Even if you didn't know what to call it, even if you didn't know who you were talking to, you prayed as hard as you could for all it was worth. I remember that, that moment for me. I was like 14 or 15 years old and my parents were going through a particularly rough year of marriage and, and they, they had been known to argue before, but this year was, was unlike other years. And then all of a sudden this hush fell on our house. And, and whatever had happened, the arguing had now ceased and now they weren't speaking to each other at all. And so I remember I, I knelt by my bed and I clasped my hands and I prayed as hard as I could for all it was worth that God would change things, that God would change hearts, that God would mend relationships, that God would generally make it better. All of us have had a moment like that where, where like me, you just, you just gave yourself away to God in that space and you held nothing back. You asked God for a sign or a hand or a map or a cure of some kind or a, or a mending of a relationship. And then you waited. You waited confidently. For God's answer to your prayer. Only it never came. Things didn't get better. Maybe they did eventually, or maybe they never did. Your need was not addressed, not directly, and and you either you either learned to pray and in entirely different way after that or else you just gave up prayer altogether because God turned out to be more stubborn more more distant 
more unconcerned than you ever thought God was. This week, in, in our new sermon series on the prophets, we listen in to the second prophet, the second minor prophet, Joel, who seems to be commanding us to pray those kind of prayers. Those give yourself over to God, pray as hard as you can, for as long as you can, for whatever it's worth before the Lord. Did you hear it this morning as John read Joel's words? Joel says, hear this. Oh, you elders, all you inhabitants, all people, you priests, you servants, you children of God, hear this, unclothe yourselves of all your fancy religious garments and put on your sackcloth, your simple drab foot-of-the-bed prayer kind of clothes and wail before the Lord. Lament, cry out, fast, give yourself away to God and pray as hard as you can and as long as you can for whatever it's worth before the Lord. For the day of the Lord is near, says the prophet Joel. And it sounds like Joel's word from the Lord is for us to turn to God and to cry out with, with you know, clasped hands for God to do something, to heal, to restore, to mend. There are three, only three, three chapters in Joel. And, and most of it is this, this beckoning for Israel to fast and to wail and to lament and to, to repent before God. But, but Joel doesn't give us any context. Joel doesn't start with or, or, or give us any, any history of what these prayers are, are about, what they're for. This, it's just this command to cry out and to fast and to pray as hard as we can for as long as we can for whatever it's worth before God. And, and so we... We, the reader, are, are left asking, asking questions. Like, what's the deal with these prayers? Why, why these prayers? Why these fasts? What, what is all of this for? Especially with our own recollection of having prayed prayers like these before in our own lives, thrown ourselves before God for as much as it's worth and have been left times disappointed with God's stubbornness or God's absence, God's distance, God's unconcern. It seems as if Joel is calling God's people to pray. And and we're over here wondering, but why all these fasts? Except we're not the, the only one asking this question. It would be good to know today that the prophet Joel has this very same question in mind as he delivers God's message to Israel. The prophet Joel would have 
wanted the people of Israel to hear that very question. Every time Joel calls the people to this kind of fasting and and praying, Joel would have wanted them to notice and hear, and they would have noticed and heard echoes from the scroll of another prophet, Isaiah. In Isaiah, we hear the people of God ask, like we ask, why do we fast and you do not see, God? Why do we humble ourselves, but you do not notice? And Isaiah's response to these questions helps us today get to the real meaning of what the prophet Joel has for us. What what Joel is, is, is all about. The people ask God, like we ask God, why do we fast and pray as hard as we can for as long as we can for whatever it's worth and you do not see? And Isaiah responds, Is that the fast that you choose? Is the fast you choose the fast I choose? No, the fast I choose is not is not your anguishing bedside prayers as or or your or your giving up grain for a few weeks. And then these famous words from Isaiah that Joel means for us to hear. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is not the fast that I choose to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the, the poor into your house and to see the, the naked clothed and to not hide yourself from discomfort or your kin. This is the kind of fasting and praying that Joel is talking about. This is the kind of fasting and praying Joel is, is beckoning us, calling us into. What Joel means for us to learn is that God's presence is, is, is not something that we can demand and plead for with hands clasped. That God's, that God's job is not to, to reward our devotion and to answer our every prayer. But that God's agenda, God's way, the fast that God chooses for us may in fact be quite different than our own. Joel is not about how we cried out to God, we showed up before God, and God didn't answer us. Joel is about how God cried out to us, showed up for us, and we did not answer God. And and so that's the big moment of disillusionment, the big moment of discomfort for Israel and for us. 
that, that God was was not where we thought God was. That they they thought God was was supposed to be with them when they knelt and they prayed and they they fasted and they studied the scriptures, and and they thought nothing pleased God more than to find them on their knees dressed in sackcloth and covered in ashes and praying as hard as they could for as long as they could, whatever it was worth. But they were wrong. God God was not to be found at the bedside. God was, God was out warming his hands over a can of burning garbage with a, with a bunch of drifters. God was delivering sacks of groceries to families in, in dilapidated housing projects. God was handing out blankets to those who, who slept in the bushes. God was, was out in the streets holding signs and, and, and providing bottled water to protesters and offering the, the, the almost sac- sacramental gesture of, of hand sanitizer to both protester and police both with with hands outstretched like this god god was not parked in sanctuaries waiting for for one of god's people to stop and and chat god god was in the emergency room at, at the city hospital and god was was in the waiting room at the labor pool and on buses carting people to booking and in jail cells disproportionately filled with black men who can't pay for bail. And God's there. Not not only to comfort those who feel stuck, but also to stir them up. Reminding them of their their birthright, their inherent nobility in the kingdom of God, reminding them that they were and are the lost children of heavenly royalty who were meant to be treated and believed as such. Is not this the fast I choose? God said to, to the to the sackcloth crowd to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. You see, the the big disillusionment, the, the big discomfort for, for Israel and for us is that they could not serve God. We cannot serve God. We cannot pray to God without meeting God where God is. Our relationship to God is not is not separate from our relationship with all the world, especially the oppressed. Israel had hope, had hoped that they could keep their faith this private matter between them and God, but it, but it turned out to just be this massive illusion. One of my favorite modern-day theologians is the Reverend Jennifer Bailey. 
She's a clergywoman in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, which was established out of the illusion and the sin of the white Methodist Church. And and she often talks about the kind of of disillusionment and, and discomfort that is the result of of words like those words from the prophet Joel. And so I want you I want you to hear from her today. I'm I'm an ordained elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, which is the oldest historically black denomination in the world. It was founded in Philadelphia in 1787 um, when you know, some interesting things were happening in Philadelphia around that time with the Constitution being <laughs> written. Um, but it was at St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church that our founder, Richard Allen, um, began a protest against racial injustice, right? Um, black folks weren't allowed to kneel at the altar at the sacred moment of prayer. They were ripped from their knees. Instead of taking that abuse, they marched out and started a movement that would become known as the Black Church. And so I share that story in part because as we think about the role of religious communities in creating a world in which we all can see one another, can identify the, the challenge right, of, of race in our country, it begins by understanding that this question of, of white supremacy, which I wouldn't call an ideology, I'd actually call it a theology, right? is deeply rooted and connected to our own understandings of Christian supremacy, and in particular, white Christian supremacy. Since the the foundation of colonial days, the the white church has been complicit in our understandings and justifications for slavery. From the beginning of colonial times, there was a cognitive dissonance about whether or not white planners should baptize slaves. And because that act of baptism means you are then within the community of believers, it means that you are free in Christ, right? And so what you see early on is this justification or the emergence of pro-slavery Christianity that pulls from biblical texts to justify the perpetual servitude of black-bodied people. You know, this is the question of our roots. And part of getting to the root of many of the challenges that continue to, to fray the fabric of our society is getting really real about the truth. It's speaking of the truth about our history and our stories, the truth about white supremacy, right? White supremacy very much to me is, is a God. The God of white supremacy is real. It is something that we are all indoctrinated in to worship. That whiteness, this ideal of whiteness, is that which is to be aspired to, that which is holy. And the God of white supremacy only survives on the blood and bodies of poor black and brown people. It's what justified slavery. It today is what justifies modern day slavery, whether we're talking about the abuse of migrant laborers, whether we're talking about literal slavery, people coming to this country and being held as slaves to work at bare minimum wages. It's an idol, this idol of whiteness and superiority entangled together. 
And I think that one of the great lies about white supremacy, this belief that people who are fair-complected are somehow better than others, one of the great lies is that it benefits any of us. All of us are hurt by the logic of white supremacy. And I see this show up too in the way that theology also can be an enterprise that kills. And I, I say that regularly because I mean it. There is something insidious about the way our theology supports our prejudices. And I say this on behalf of the, of the, the church writ large as we think about it in the United States. And I come from a black church tradition that our, the beginning of our Bible and story actually begins with Exodus and not Genesis. And it's through that narrative of liberation that we begin to imagine a world in which all are free. And that's not to say the black church doesn't have its complicated nuances that are sometimes troubling and problematic. But I believe that it's from the margins, that it's from the stories of those who are vulnerable and pushed out, those who are not centered, that we can begin to hear from God in a new way. And, and when we find, when we begin to find God with and, and begin listening to the voices on the margins, the voices of the oppressed, the voices that even inflame our discomfort and, and, our, and our disillusionment, that is when the fast that God's, God chooses for us is realized. And, and, the, and the thongs of the yoke will be undone, friends, and, and the bonds of injustice will be loosed. That's when, as Joel finally proclaims for us today, the liberation and presence of God's Spirit, which God has poured out on all flesh, not like all lives matter, but all flesh, particular flesh, black flesh, white flesh, our flesh, their flesh, will finally be realized and fulfilled in God's people. And God's beloved sons and daughters will, will, will prophesy, the prophet says, because of this. And, and our elders, those who have experience, those who, who are wise, will, will dream bigger dreams than ever before. And our young will see visions, finally, of God's beautiful, glorious, redemptive freedom and future. It's then, it's then that we will have prayed and we will have fasted as hard as we can for as long as we can, for as much as it's worth. And God will hear us and God will not disappoint. Mm-hmm.